Hello and welcome to another episode of Fair Conversations, part of the Mormon Faircast. The Foundation for Apologetic Information and Research is a nonprofit organization dedicated to providing well-documented answers to criticisms of LDS doctrine, belief, and practice. To learn more about Fair or to make donations, visit fairlds.org. I'm Blair Hodges, host of Fair Conversations, and in this episode, we continue our conversation with BYU professor, associate professor of biology, Stephen Peck. In the last episode, uh, Stephen gave us a brief outline of evolution, and we talked a little bit about the relationship between science and religion. In this episode, we talk more about Latter-day Saint thought and evolution, so we talk about things such as Adam and death before the fall. We also talk about the problem of, of natural evil or suffering in the world. We're back with Stephen Peck. He's talking to us about evolution, science, faith, religion, and Latter-day Saints. Stephen is a professor at Brigham Young University. Uh, thanks for joining us oh, again, Steve. Oh, you're welcome. I'm glad to be here. It's my favorite subject. <laughs> yeah, excellent. In the last episode, we talked a little bit about uh, evolution, and I want to shift that over into some of the religious uh, implications of that. Um, Latter-day Saints have long praised the blessings of sciences, as you well know. We've had some great LDS yeah. scientists in the past. Um, we have, uh, you know, we obviously we praise a lot of the medical advances, a lot of the technological developments that have occurred. The church makes use of with the internet and and with uh, you know um, vaccinations and helping uh, with that sort of thing. So the church makes use of a lot of uh, products of science and scientific research. But the relationship hasn't always been particularly cozy, uh, particularly on the subject of evolution. And there was a 2009 Pew Forum survey which asked respondents if evolution was the best explanation for human life on Earth or for the origins of human life. And they discovered that the general American public is evenly divided on it. They say about 48% said that it's the best explanation, and about 45% rejected that position. So what's more interesting to us particularly, though, and this is pretty striking, um, according to their survey, with all the problems that surveys might have, only 22% of Mormons told the told the Pew Forum that evolution was the best explanation for human life. So three out of four Mormons that they spoke with disagreed with that. In fact, only Jehovah's Witnesses rank lower than us at 90%. So um, according to your understanding of, of church doctrine and church teachings, um, what do you make of those statistics? Yeah, it's, it's um, disappointing if, if accurate. I, you know, people have pointed out and been, been people... Uh, thinking about this, they point out that the wording's kind of of bad in that uh, the best explanation depends on if you're talking about proximate explanation or ultimate explanation. If if Latter Day Saints are are reading that as why humans are here, uh, you know they they would be disinclined to agree with the statement. Um, but even even given all that, my own experience is that may not be far away from what most Latter-day Saints think. I, on my mission, uh, all all us missionaries, uh, you know, grew up in an atmosphere where where evolution was considered, frankly, evil. And in fact, I can remember telling a guy he couldn't be baptized unless he quit believing in it. And this is a, was an underlying assumption of, of all the words I'd gone to. I, I find it widespread. So it, even given the problems, I don't know what the actual statistic is, but 22% does not really surprise me. I mean, you find words from, from places, you know, where, where, where it's filled with, you know, people who have graduate degrees. Um, you know, th that figure goes way, way up. Uh, but I think in the general church population, that might not be inaccurate. And if it is, I think it's unfortunate because really there is nothing about our doctrine that should be threatened by evolution to the extent that you seem to see it. And, and just in fact, uh, uh, my, my children continue to get anti-evolutionary messages in seminary, and it causes them confusion. And it causes people of faith great confusion when a, when a student uh, grows up in this atmosphere. And, and when they go to BYU, they're, they're taught right about evolution. But, you know, you can imagine 
And I know you mean in in the in the school biology particularly, right? Right, right. and especially when you get into college. And I mean, I, I speak from great experience in 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 knowing people who have felt like they had to make a choice between religion or science. And and make no mistake, that's the choice if you deny evolution. Uh, the, the scientific story of evolution is so striking. When you get into college, a student arrives at, say, a, a secular university, and they're presented with the enormity of the, of the evidence for evolution, and they've come to really believe that they now have to make a choice between science and religion. Uh, we, lose, we lose a lot of people. We lose a lot of students because they feel like that, that, that there's a dichotomy here that they've grown up with. And if evolution's true, then the church must not be true. Or if the church is true, then evolution will not be true. And so there's actually two reactions. One is to, to hold on to the church, but then become anti-science and, and hold these huge suspicions of science that you see all over the place in the church and that still get talked about that, that you cannot hold on to both. And I disagree with that so vehemently. That choice never has to be made. The two both are ways of knowing, as Elder Scott says, they're both both beautiful and bring us important truths about the nature of the universe, both our place in it and the way that it works. And it's just a shame that this mythology, that the two are incompatible, is so entrenched in LDS culture. And I, I, I'm, I mean that word, I'm choosing that word deliberately because I think it's cultural, not doctrinal. And yet there are people who want to conflate that. You find blogs all over the place where people say you have to make a choice evolution's evil there you know there was no death before the fall we have to we have to destroy any any uh, uh, we have to destroy all science that suggests that the story might be more complex and there's a good number of people that get misled by these people who think they're doing good but i think they they are are responsible for great harm in the church and the hard thing is i mean if we look historically it's it's very simple i'm on the fair fair website, I'm going to post some links to some articles that talk about the historical circumstances about the church's church leaders' responses to evolution. Yeah. And what what you see early on is um, there was a first presidency statement early on by Joseph F. Smith in his first presidency when they said that Adam is the primal parent of our race. That was the quote that they used. And then the controversy arose because um, individuals such as B. H. Roberts and uh, James E. Talmadge and others were seeking a way to reconcile evolutionary theory with with church scripture and then you had Joseph Fielding Smith on the other hand and who was the most vocal who uh, felt that evolutionary theory would um, basically override the truthfulness of the, of the gospel right. sort of thing and and um, Joseph F Smith felt that if if we evolved from uh, if there was death before the fall, that means that there was no fall, which means that there's no need for Christ, which means that there's no need for an atonement, which means that there's no eternal life and that, you know, that sort of thing. And so it slips into this. Right. Uh, and so that's where the dichotomy was set up. But what's unfortunate is Joseph Fielding Smith was able to put his perspective into a few books and into a few um, church talks. And B.H. Roberts's particular book wasn't ultimately published. He was going to put a book out okay. called The truth, the way, and the life, and which, you know, it had its own scientific problems, to be sure. Um, it's it's quite outdated today. Oh, but exactly. He, he, t he talks in that, terms of pre-Adamites. And, and uh -huh. But that sort of, sort of set things up for, uh, by the time the first presidency tried to call a truce, and they did this in about uh, 1931, they said, and this is a very interesting way that they put this, because this big controversy they'd been facing for several years between is the church going to promote evolution, is the church going to deny evolution, what is the church going to do? And the church decided not to do really either of those things. In fact, uh, President Grant said, leave geology, biology, archaeology, and those sort of things to scientific research while we magnify our calling in the realm of the church. And one thing we agree on is that Adam's the primal parent of our race. Right. So, so they they put they you know they held to a literal Adam, but at the same time they said, let science work its way out. We're not going to deny. We're not going to um, say Latter Day Saints can't believe in evolution. In fact, they didn't do that at all. And as you said, at Brigham Young University, they have probably one one of the you know premier biology departments in the in the country. Is that is that fair to say? Absolutely. In fact. Uh 
the, the Department of Biology could be better named the Department of, of Evolutionary Ecology, Ecological Sciences. I mean, BYU has a, a tremendous reputation for evolutionary ecology. Uh, almost everyone in the department is doing an active research program in evolutionary ecology. I'm trying to think of an exception. I can't think of anyone. Every, this, this is BYU's strength. In fact, uh, Alan Templeton is, is one of the leaders uh, in uh, evolutionary studies. Uh, he, was, he was interviewed uh, during the, uh, the, the monkey trials in, uh, in uh, Pennsylvania. And he, uh, he said, well, if you want to see people who do religion and science right, look to Brigham Young University. And he's basing that solely on our reputation for, for science. He doesn't know what we're doing religiously, but he does know Right. Scientifically, we are a a strong and and active participant in evolutionary research. In fact, it cracks me up. Uh, one woman on my on my blog was arguing with somebody about evolution, and she said, "If evolution were true, they'd teach it at Brigham Young University." And I I, I really got a kick out of that because <laughs> <laughs> you know it is it is it is a. Uh, a, a, a premier evolutionary ecology program, and yet it is also a, a, a premier. Our, our students are faithful, and and our faculty is. The, the The two go hand in hand. I can't emphasize that enough. That that evolution is no threat to our our beliefs. It, it takes some readjustment. I, I won't deny that. You can't hold to you know about the time that that Joseph Fielding Smith was writing. Uh, there was a lot of uh, the same views that creationist evangelical Christianity held, like a, a young earth. Uh, all these kinds of things were very, very typically held. And um, that, that, that viewpoint sort of leaked into a lot of people's minds about our doctrine. And in fact, Joseph Fielding Smith, you know, compared it to the same being that, that, uh, Influenced Cain in the Garden of Eden, you know, whispered uh, to Darwin. <laughs> yeah, you know, uh, some really harsh, harsh, harsh statements. I mean, that's why I can sympathize with some of these members of the church who, in online discussions and things, are so adamant that absolutely. you know against it. I mean, they have plenty to draw on as far as a lot of the things that uh, President Smith. Well, prior to being president, I should clarify a lot of the things. Yes, that, and that's an important point. Yeah, uh, he never he, once he became once he became prophet. He never spoke on evolution again. It's really interesting. Yeah. He became completely silent about it. And uh, I think that is one of the, one of the, the, the hallmarks that, that we need to look to. Uh, interestingly, David O. McKay, as prophet, continued to speak very favorably about evolution. Right. Uh, you know, never going so far as to say, you know, this is the way God did it. But but he, he uses evolution as an example of progress in science in, in one talk. Uh, you know, it's, it's, um, it's an unfortunate that it unfolded that way. Well, we have other Latter-day Saint thinkers who, who didn't think that way. I mean, so exactly. I mean, who are some of them? There, there were general authorities who spoke in positive ways about evolution, right? Right. I mean, J James Talmadge. And, and you have to remember, too, I mean, the, the, the people who want to dismiss evolution— Go back, and they see that B. H. Roberts and James Talmadge are kind of milk toast yeah. in their embracing of, of Darwinian yeah. evolution. The thing is, though, is that it wasn't until the '30s actually that evolution, that that Darwin's idea of of evolution through natural selection, gained the purchase necessary, and it went through this big nadir right at the turn of the century and down, where evolution through natural selection scientifically was losing ground. And the reason was that there was no mechanism. All the all the way people thought that inheritance occurred. I mentioned that inheritance uh -huh. is a huge. It's one of the part three of, big things of, you said. Exactly. Well, there was no mechanism. Nobody and, and and all of the the mechanisms that people speculated about at the time held to a kind of a blending inheritance, where you kind of blend the characteristics of, of parents, and that ruins evolution. If it is blending, it's gone. And because it gets watered down to nothing. 
in, in the long term. It, it, it really, it wasn't a very strong, their milk toast expressions of evolution are in fact reflective of the milk toast expressions of evolution in the scientific community. Nobody really doubted evolution per se. I mean, the evidence from the fossil record was convincing enough right. that species change. But what was, we didn't have the, me the Darwinian mechanism in place until, until, uh, that's when genes and things like when, that were, right? Yeah, Mendel was rediscovered, and all of a sudden, particulate inheritance of evolution had a mechanism, and, and then the evidence started accruing, and, and it's just snowballed. That's really interesting, I mean, because that's and, about when the first presidency said, we're going to leave this to scientific research, which, ironically enough, was about the time right. when when neo-Darwinism or, neo, you know, uh, new views of evolution really started right. to take off. So we're left with a... Uh, with I think an un unfortunate um, legacy where where people might emphasize things that perhaps Joseph Fielding Smith said because they you know they believe we believe in prophets right. and so we should rely on the things that they say but they overlook the fact that we also had other prophets seers and revelators so to speak James Talmadge and John Whitso and others who uh, who right. took a different position on it and and so that that's a completely valid thing for Latter Day Saints today. And the, and the church itself has never made any more statements than the ones they've made. The church, as the church, has never, I mean, there are, there are obviously examples of people who did not believe in evolution, and these get thrown up all the time. I mean, you can, you can line up quotes from people who didn't believe in evolution all the day long. Um, but that was their opinion, and, and they're really drawing on kind of the cultural influences that were prevalent at the time where evolution and, and religion were seen as harmful to each other. You had big debates like the, the monkey trials, and th this continues. You, you continue to see that there was a lot of rhetoric coming from especially evangelical Christianity that, that evolution was evil. And there was just, you know, there were lots of sources to read about this, and, and unfortunately th those right, crept into is, our discourse. Right. But not the church's discourse. The individual members uh, of the church in high positions, though, um, had an, an opinion about, about evolution that, that, you know, given that if there wasn't this big battle going on in America about it, probably never would have appeared in the church at all. And That's what's interesting with Joseph Fielding Smith is there. that he wasn't claiming to have received revelation on any of this. He was actually relying on, on non-Mormon uh, sources on evolution, right? The, the, the primary person was a uh, Seventh-day Adventist guy named George McCready Price. He, he was a, a, a Ph.D. trained geologist who was, he, his, his big thing was flood geology. And, you know, how, you know, where do we find the evidence of the flood in, in, in the fossil record? But he was a huge influence on Joseph uh, Fielding Smith, and, and his work sort of gets incorporated into his writing uh, you know, quite, quite readily. And um, so, so that's, that's interesting. Yeah, he, he wasn't drawing on Revelation. He was drawing on and said they had been a scriptural exegesis, uh, scriptural interpretation as well. I, I would say, right? I mean, exactly. So here's exactly. here's the issue with that, though. I mean, and we've touched on it a little bit. Is the slippery slope argument can enter into the discussion where if if Mormon apostles uh, have been wrong on things like um, the global nature of Noah's flood or the age of the earth or uh, on the F, on the accuracy of evolutionary theory, if they've been wrong about that, um, how can they be trustworthy on on other issues? Uh, and I mean, that's that's a question that, that a lot of people have asked. If we can't trust LDS leaders on that issue, why should we trust them on other issues? And what what would you respond to that? You know, I think I think I think this brings up an important important thing that we really don't talk about very often. General authorities are human, and they have opinions. They have opinions about things that that are current in the uh, you know scientific world. Uh, I was thinking about Elder Scott's talk. He he mentions in that talk quarks, and I, I was picturing sort of these no death people way in the future, and, like and ether, like ether quarks is, right? become passe. Right, they get rewritten and incorporated in new ways and into scientific description of subatomic particles. Say string, string theory pops out, so you can imagine these future uh, no death before the for the Paul thing saying in a general conference. Elder Scott mentioned quarks, therefore they exist, therefore our current science has gone astray. They're, they're, they're saying that there are no quarks when we know from a general authority that there are quarks. And that's not Elder Scott's point at all. He's talking, he's knowing the truth. He's not, he's not making committed statements that quarks exist. 
uh, he's making a statement about about how we find truth. But they get misread like this a lot, and their opinions about science and scientific controversies are going to be culturally contextualized. They're they're going to be based on their understanding, and we don't believe in infallibility. But the, the church makes statements. There are fi official church positions that are usually very, very clear, read in general conference, voted on. Uh, you know, there's a difference between opinions. And I think following general authority opinions, whether it's uh, about science or, you know, the, the taste in the proper color of tie, you know, or hairstyle becomes a silly exercise where they speak about the gospel and 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 give revelations I think I think it's important I mean there's there's a great statement I, I think of humility and and power by Elder McConkie when the, the revelation that the priesthood should be extended to all worthy males he says and I'm paraphrasing because I don't have it in front of me but it's something along the lines of Forget everything we said. Forget what everything we wrote. We 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 spoke without the light and knowledge that has just been revealed to the world. That's a tremendous statement of 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 faith and of humility and the recognition that new revelations trump old revelations and that things we may have spoken the way we may have understood the world previously is not the way we understand the world now. And we have to allow this, this, this kind of change as members of the church. I and mean, one of the things we continually believe is in continuing revelation. And, we, and, we, and we, we really need to take that seriously, that maybe there are things that are going to change, especially perspectives. As we gain more and more knowledge from science and other sources in the natural world, it's quite likely that, that we are going to have to revise the way we understand things, understand the scriptures, understand the world, but we can do that. I mean, it's not, it's not outside of the realm of our theology. We're not locked into particular interpretations of the scriptures. Uh, you know, we're, we're locked into to revel, revelation. And so where I see the problem is when people take statements from, from general authorities that are, are clearly based on their opinion. I mean, uh, Joseph Fielding Smith's book, Man, His Origin, His Destiny, David O. McKay hated the book. There's clear evidence he was angry that it was published. Right, but part of the problem is, is that I don't know that the church ever publicized things like that that opposed uh, the view ex ex expressed by Joseph Fielding Smith, which, which is what I wanted to ask you about uh, as, far as, as, okay. as far as how you would... How you would approach that survey, which suggests that only 22% of Mormons say that it's the best, you know, that evolution is the best explanation. So if there is a pretty widespread anti-evolutionary feeling within the church, do you think it's something that can only be overturned by a statement over in general conference, or maybe a change in church manuals? Or do you see the church taking an approach to it as where they're saying they're just going to let it atrophy? I think over time, you know, younger people coming up in the church will be much more willing to accept the idea of evolution. But then there are also people who right now we're falling through the cracks and leaving the church because the, yeah you know, so i mean what what do you say about as far as addressing it is concerned well and i think i think the church is in an awkward position i mean i i think if they start to speak about scientific matters it kind of promotes the kind of confusions that have occurred and so i i think that you know the statement you read is beautiful leave geology biology archaeology and anthropology to the scientists uh, and 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 you know there has to be some, there there has to be some uh, theological heavy, heavy lifting and I like President Hinckley's statement. Um, he he somebody he got asked about some theological point. He said I I leave that to the professors, and and, and so I think it's appropriate to tr to wrestle with these things, but I'm not sure the church should you know declare by fiat that evolution is true. You know there is that one percent chance I talked about. You know, the Catholic Church put out a very friendly statement to evolution, and everybody, you know, was on board. But I, 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 think, I think the best approach is to create an environment where, where, where the science can, can be held in a friendly way. Uh, you know, that, that not, not make statements about evolution, but, you know, people who do believe in evolution create a space where it's okay to believe in evolution and not like the sort of, hardcore no death before the fall people right. who insist on 
you choose. You know, there's a choice to be made here. You can choose light, darkness, and those that choose darkness will be damned in hell. I, I had a religion professor tell me at BYU that I was, I won't name names, but when I was here, he told me that, uh, that I was going to hell because I believed right. in evolution. And when he said it, he didn't mean a nice Mormon <laughs> hell. You know, I could tell he was reverting to a good Baptist hell. Right? Yeah. <laughs> you know, Mormon hells are, are fine until you really need somebody to get it. <laughs> and we want to have a good, good uh, fire and brimstone experience for these evolutionary believers. But you, you can imagine, as an undergraduate, what that did to my perception of faith and science. And thank goodness I had a good and, and wise bishop that I brought my concerns to. And, I, and he, said, he said, you know, Brother Peck, don't worry about this. Don't worry about that. You read the scriptures as you read them, and it's going to be okay. And it was the best advice he could have given. You know, if, if I would have put a lot of stock into, I've got to make a choice here now, you know, it would have been disastrous. Right, you probably wouldn't be on the on the podcast right now, yeah. All right, probably not. I'd... It'd be nice if the church would just release right. this huge statement that declared evolution to be acceptable or, or right or whatever. But at the same time, that's just the sort of thing that got the church in trouble in the past or that got certain church leaders in trouble in the past. Right, and, and I think the right approach is to, is to leave this to the scientists and let it sort it out and, and create a space. And, you know, even Joseph Fielding Smith, you know, there's a great, great, I, I, I wish I could find the source for this. I, I can't find it. Maybe somebody else can dig it out for me and send it to me. But uh, he also, right. and I, I've got his writings on this, believed that men would never reach the moon, that the sphere of the earth was our, our domain and that it would be impossible. So, you know, they shoot, <laughs> they go to the moon, and he gets challenged on it. Oh, you said nobody would ever go to the moon. And he just shrugs and says, ah, it's wrong. <laughs> you know, I <laughs> think. I, I, I think he's probably, you know, doing the same thing about evolution. Yeah, well, whoops, you know, and that right. doesn't, that doesn't, you know, remove his writings right. on Christ and atonement and these kinds of things, um, the things that he was commissioned to speak on. And, and so, you know, I, it doesn't bother me at all that, that leaders in the church held opinions which turned out to be wrong. I think Brother McConkie's humility at the uh, pre change of priesthood status is a good uh, model for for how to approach that things change and and we don't need to hold on to doctrines and dogmas right and i think the fact that the different church leaders have had different perspectives on on these things is a good indication that um the church members can as well and i bring that up in the context of of adam um of the idea of a historical adam a biological ancestor named adam so basically the an, an argument that a lot of Latter-day Saints have heard is the idea that if there's no um, historical figure called Adam, that there would be no fall of Adam, then there would be no need for an atonement, and thus no need for Jesus. Um, and so let's talk about the historical Adam, or idea of historic Adam in, in, in Latter-day Saint thought. Um, there's other Christians today who have reconciled evolution by positing that, that Adam is a not a historical figure, but as um, an allegorical figure or a mythological figure. But Latter-day Saints general be generally believe that he was a real historical person. Um, what are your thoughts on this? I, I think the important thing to keep in mind about Adam is that for Latter-day Saints, especially, there are rather easy answers because we define the first man as the first event where a spirit child of God was placed in a body. We have a very keen sense that what makes us unique as humans isn't just the physical shape of our body or the, the way that we look, but that, in fact, that we have a, a, a spirit that we believe is, a, is a, a, a child or an offspring of God in some sense. And, and I don't have a really good sense of what that means, whether it's biological or by some other means, but whatever it is. The, the, there's a parental relationship between us and God. And Adam is the first of, of that kind of thing to happen. So I don't think it's necessary to, to throw out Adam, as, as I've seen done in other places, uh, other, other Christian religions, uh, just because of the way we define Adam as the first 
man, meaning the first time a spirit child of God was placed in a body. So do you think there do you think there's room in Latter Day Saint thought for a mythological view of Adam, or do you think that it's it's more more sound generally to to sort of posit a stopgap Adam, sort of like you you talked about? You know, I, I actually think we need room for both in a sense. I mean, I think we have this very clear from science picture of the way life has evolved on Earth. We have a very clear picture of hominin, as we call it, evolution. Uh, some of the best fossils we have are human fossils. There's, there's, there's absolutely scientifically no way to deny that there has been a long history of, of human habitation. And we as Latter-day Saints also have some very interesting wording about Adam being figurative. And so I'm more interested that we have, that we allow the diversity of thought in this. I mean, that, that some people may believe that, that Adam was the first spirit child of God or, or maybe that he's figurative. I, my, my personal feeling is that, that we need room for both. And in fact, we, I don't really see any revelation that denies or supports either uh, interpretation. I, I see the, the idea of Adam is important because we have a doctrine of the fall and something happened, but what that means, I don't think we need to pin down that we can, I, I think we can have, we can, we can sort of hold the possibilities of both views. So okay. I, maybe that's wishy-washy, but, but I really am interested in diversity of thought within the church. One thing that uh, someone might bring up as a response to that is the idea of death before the fall of Adam, right. death on earth. And so I think right. that was one of the points that uh, Elder McConkie talked about quite a bit. And, and so your view would sort of contradict that because the Book of Mormon talks a little bit about death entering the world through Adam. I think right. the New Testament does. The Old Testament has some scriptures on that, but uh, – is it a case where we're reading present assumptions back onto the scriptural text, or how do you reconcile that? Well, I think so. I, I think that as, as a matter of fact, we, we see rich fossils. Unless we're pushing back Adam to the Cambrian or something, I think there, the evidence is really cl clear that, that there were things that have lived on this planet a long time that, that lived and died, that ate, and, and did all of those kinds of things. But I don't see that as a threat. I mean, when we understand there's no death before the fall, there's lots of ways that that could be interpreted. It could be interpreted, and these are just several uh, ways that, that people have pointed out. Uh, it could be that, that maybe that the, these were just biological machines up to the point where the earth was ready for a, a spiritual emanation to infuse it or maybe um, no death before the fall really does refer back to it, it brings in I think the the idea of the atonement maybe it was impossible to sin and the death that they're talking about isn't necessarily a physical death and and so the fact that there are a few end runs suggests to me that maybe there are others and maybe we just don't understand it enough and these are things that'll, that would have to be revealed. But I don't think it, it's necessary that, that we hold this view. And in fact, I think this, the, the view that demands that there is no death before the fall is ultimately very harmful. I mean, it's very harmful, I think, to, to, to see the people that write this way and the people who have uh, sort of made their living proclaiming no death before the fall and and any other viewpoints uh, uh, means you're in a state of apostasy, I think is really harmful because we have students going out and, and uh, attending other universities and they're all of a sudden confronted with a believe there was no death before 6,000 years ago or you can't be a Mormon anymore. I mean, and that's the impression they leave. I really am discouraged by that kind of rhetoric that makes people choose between religion and science when I don't think such a change is uh, such a choice is necessary. Okay. Um, another question that comes up in in the context of of evolution and religion is the idea of natural evil. And um, the other night I was driving home from school, and it was it was dark out, and in the middle of the of the road uh, I saw a raccoon, and it had been hit by a car. And it was, you know, it was still alive, and it was just 
struggling on the ground and, and, and sort of trying to roll over and I saw him whipping his tail around and I, it, it all happened so fast. He was in the middle of the road and I, I sort of wished I could have, um, you know, maybe hit him, hit, hit him myself and put him out of his misery. Yeah. And it just made me, uh, feel horrible that there was this, you know, little creature that was suffering there in, in the, in the road. And, and that's, um, quite minuscule on the scale of, of suffering and death and things that have happened over the, how long would you put back the first organisms that could, could feel pain like that? I mean, Oh, old, old, you know, Cambrian probably, you know, the first neuro where the first neurology starting to show up and yeah. So, I mean, so, that's a long, yeah, a long history. So people say if God creates that way, then he's really inefficient and also, um, not very merciful either because there's a lot of suffering. Um, have you thought a, a lot about uh, that that issue? You know, I have. And in fact, what's interesting to me is that an evolutionary viewpoint or an evolutionary theology actually, actually gets around that a bit. And and it, it, it comes from, I think, a very Mormon perception or, or a very Mormon idea that God is not this uh, you know, omnip, omnipotent God of the, of, you know, the, the Neoplatonist view of God, where, where uh, God created everything ex nihilo, or I'm not saying that right. <laughs> yeah, I don't know how to pronounce you know that. I mean? ex ni- ex, from nothing. <laughs> yeah, from nothing. <laughs> and, and an all-powerful God that has no limits. And if you, if you posit that kind of God, then, wow, natural evil really is a painful idea because it means God just created all these creatures to suffer. Right. That's what Darwin said, right? He said the, the, the devil's cleric or whatever could write quite the you know, right. history of, of life. And, right. And, he, and he, 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 he wrote a letter explaining that he really had difficulties with an idea of a God who could create an ichneumonid wasp that would lay its larvae in another creature's body and let them essentially eat it alive. And, um, and, and natural evil is really, really difficult to explain because it, it is, uh, as you, as you saw it with the raccoon, immensely obvious. Yeah. I was watching a a movie or a a television documentary. Yeah. This is the lion, right? Yeah. You mentioned that in the last episode. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Right. So what's 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 interesting to me about a, a Mormon theology is that we don't have the same omnipotent God uh, who created ex nihilio or with from nothing. <laughs> uh, and um, and and so our God, we believe, uses natural law in a sense, laws that are in, in, in place. I mean, Right, a lot of Christians would say that that's almost blasphemous to say that yeah. uh, God's almost constrained by law. And would you do you think that would you say God's a product of law, or that he? How would you How would you? Well, uh, you know, I I think from the Mormon perspective, uh, in a sense, we believe in an embodied God, uh, which implies that embodiment must mean something, right? Which, which must mean that that. That if it means something, if it means that there there are causal effects that are brought about the body, or that 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 you know are used in the body, you know, to speak really wildly and loosely, a, a heavenly biology. Um, I don't. I have no idea what that might mean, but <laughs> right. <laughs> but 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 this idea, I think, is. Uh, is is very important that we that we really we you know we have a have scriptures that talk about God ceasing to be God under certain conditions if mm-hmm. if he acted uh, un, un, immorally or unethically uh, and so 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 explaining why the history of the earth is just so barbaric so red in tooth and claw suggests that this may be how complexity arises this is in essence, what has to be done to create a complex creature like us, uh, uh, an embodied creature. And, you know, this is wildly speculative. Uh, but, but, but for me, this really kind of solves the problem of natural evil. And, and it actually, for me, is a, is a more powerful view of God in the sense that 
that the suffering that 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 we've gone through that that culminates in the suffering of Christ is real suffering and it has to be acknowledged and the atonement really is redeeming all of creation and that all of creation is important and invested in in this this earth life so uh you know that's one of the things that have has really bothered Christians and I think has really been a drain in trying to explain that there was the 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 article um by I think his name was Wesley Wildman in dialogue. It was a, a sermon that he gave that just is is full of despair in trying to reconcile a good God who's all powerful and the natural horror of of how messy and wasteful and and I know just and, that raccoon like I don't know it, yeah. it it made me feel just terrible exactly <laughs> and it's just a I mean I hate to say just a raccoon but I mean. On, on the grand scale of things, it was just a little raccoon. Yeah. Well, one, one resolution that Latter-day Saints might turn to um, is the idea of intelligent design. And this is sort of a new, uh, a new movement that's grown out of creationism, from what I understand. Yeah. Uh, and <laughs> and I, I know you're, you're not a fan of it. And uh, I know there are some Latter-day Saints who are interested in it. And I was, I was hoping that you could spend a little bit of time sort of describing what intelligent design, what the intelligent design movement says and, and, um, how the the wider scientific community um, views it? Yeah, yeah. This is this is a constant bugabear with for scientists, and and it's especially sort of risen risen in popularity among Latter Day Saints. I've seen lots of blogs on it and people sort of saying, "Hey, this is a good idea." And I I, I think it's only recommendation is it's got a cool name. <laughs> I mean, when 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 you look at it and you say intelligent design, yeah. We believe God's intelligent, and yeah, design. We like that, you know. Intelligent yeah. design. That must be. That's the way God created. It's I a mean, good name, yeah. It is good. I mean, yeah. you know, marketing is so important. Well, we <laughs> want to see the hand of God in all things, sort of, sort of thing, right? right. I mean, we want to see God's hand in creation, but, but again, then we, then we have to deal with that the raccoon problem again. Right, right. So, in intelligent design, this is a movie. Pretty much launched by a book by Michael Behe, Darwin's Black Box. And in it, he argued that there are some things that are irreducibly complex, meaning there, there's no evolutionary story that can construct certain features uh, found in biology because you need all the parts in place in order for, for uh, this thing to work. And if it doesn't work, there's no way, you know, Darwin, uh, Darwinism assumes this, this sort of selective gradient that each step along the way is better than the, the thing it just was. And so as selection proceeds, things increase in complexity. And so he, 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 he came up with this idea of uh, irreducible complexity that some things are just too complex and there is no evolutionary story. Yeah, this reminds me there's a... Uh a uh, person I know who pointed to the human eye, and he said the way that it sits in the eye socket and the way that you know that it's lubricated and things like this indicate that no, there wouldn't be incremental steps towards having an eyeball. Is that sort of what they're saying? Yeah, and I can't remember if Behe uses that, but he since backed off because what's interesting is that that we have on Earth right now. Every step along the way to, from from very very primitive eyes, essentially a, a cluster of cells that are sensitive to light, uh -huh. uh, to the you know a, a human or even better than human is the uh, is the uh, uh, octopus eye. The you know the this 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 we've got our uh, optic nerve in front of our our light gathering apparatus so we got we have a blind spot in yeah it causes eye. the blind spot where it goes back through the into the skull and stuff right like all, yeah, where all the nerves go and, out of the eye and so when we're resurrected i always joke i hope i get an octopus eye because it's <laughs> better <laughs> but but so we we see the whole range there so that 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 can't be right we we can we can reconstruct the eye just on creatures uh, that we find on earth examples of every stage uh and so one of the one of the the, the big big pieces of his book was the flagellum in a bacteria. That's the little squiggly tail that they use to swim around. Uh -huh. 
And so, so he, he has some elaborate arguments uh, about how that can't have evolved. Well, what's interesting is because, uh, maybe not because of him, but since he's made that argument, there's been uh, work done that shows exactly we know now how the flagellum evolved. We know how we know each piece of piece of it, and we've it's been reconstructed both genetically and the entire entire scenario of how each of these pieces falls into place has been perfectly worked out. There's there's no longer any mystery about how flagellum could could evolve. And the interesting thing about the intelligent design movement is how disingenuous they are. Uh, the, the Dover judge, this was the trial in Pennsylvania to decide if intelligent design should be taught in the schools, uh, went off in his, his ruling about how filled with lies and misinformation and misdirection uh, they were. And, and it's things like this, that the story of the flagellum is, is all worked out and uh, just to give a little bit, little bit of more ba background on that is, you're talking about the uh, there was a in October 2005 the the Kitts Miller versus Dover case. This was right. when when um, parents sued sued the school district because they had introduced intelligent design in, into biology classes, right? Right, right, exactly. And so, um, Behe uh, it was giving a talk just a few years ago that I attended and he was still giving the flagellum example as if he paid no attention. And this is one of the things that's interesting about them as well, is they're constantly saying science has, scientists have no answer to us. They've ignored us. They paid no attention to us. And what's so funny though, is science has not ignored them. They've, they've, they have answered them. They have responded. They, they provide evidence and scientific studies that refute the things that they're saying, but they keep making this claim that, you know, wah, 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 nobody's listening to us. Scientists are, are, are hiding this. There was in fact a movie I can't remember the name of a few years ago about how the intelligent design was being, being, not being uh, considered by scientists. And the thing is, 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 is the it, comedian who made that movie? Is that? Yeah. The one? Yeah. I, I can't. What's that guy? Uh, the, the clear eyes guy. Yeah. Ben Stein. Yeah. Yeah. Ben Stein. Schooled. Yeah. Schooled. Something like Something that. Like that. Schooled or. Google or, it people. Yeah. Something. <laughs> <laughs> But he, but 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 what's so funny is, quite literally, they do not respond to the scientists. They keep up with their examples that they've pulled up, pretending that science hasn't addressed it, pretending that 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 no one's uh, taking them seriously. And yet, in the uh, one of the big philosophy of science journals, um, uh, they just did it, devoted an entire issue to examining the questions why it doesn't work and. The, and the, it comes down to that it's not a science. It's, in fact, a, a, a claim that is non-scientific. The claim is this is irreducible, com, irreducibly complex. And by fiat, they declare this is too evolved, this is too complex to have evolved. But that's not a scientific position. That's just a, a, a position of ignorance, you know. A scientist would make the same claim except couch it as we haven't figured out yet how this has evolved. Right. It seems to me to be just a maybe somewhat more sophisticated or more recent version of the God of the Gaps idea, which is to – they do point out questions that, that linger uh, among evolutionary theorists, and then they say this – and then they say something like, you know, here's an irreducibly complex thing, which we say is irreducibly complex because we personally don't know how to say how it, it would have evolved. Right. And then they say right. that that's God sort of thing. Or, or they yeah. don't – want to go that far either they don't want to say god right they say that's been intelligently designed right right careful to make that distinction forth. right and and it, it really is quite silly and really is quite non-scientific and and the interesting thing is they have all kinds of money pouring into the creation research institute where yeah. where they uh uh that's not the name of it i'm trying to think of the name of it uh but anyway they have an intelligent design uh discovery institute that's it the discovery institute 
has money pouring in. And, you know, if that money was being put into a science, they would be doing scientific work. But as far as I can tell, the Discovery Institute just makes T-shirts and claims and never does any science. And in fact, there is no science coming out of there. They have, they have, they have published in no scientific journals. Now, they could say that that's because they're discriminated against, right? Well, they I mean, do say that, in fact. Um, and they are discriminated against, but it's because they're not doing good science. I mean, they're not doing any <laughs> science. <laughs> I mean, what, what, and so what, what would count? But there's nothing to be done. What would count? Like, what would count for, for them to do as, as far as being con considered a science? Well, and that's why people keep asking, and, and they don't have an answer. Because, you know, their their strategy is to say... Well, let's look for, you know, this irreducible complexity. Let's find that. And they find it. Science addresses it. And they have no response. You know, if they were doing science, the way it would work would be, if you take the flagellum example, if, if they were doing science, when this paper came out saying this is how it evolved, their response should have been, okay, you're right, but what about this? Or this is where you're wrong, this is why we don't think you've addressed the question, but they never do. They never respond to the science. They always just come back to claims of their of it being uh, of, of, of there being a conspiracy or they're being excluded. but they're just they're just whining because they're not offering any science to be evaluated. They really aren't. Okay. so okay. Um, there you have it. it's it's yeah. I, I think it's one of the most most silly but dangerous ideas around it's dangerous because they they keep making strides in in convincing state legislatures and almost in utah they did uh that that the idea should be taught in schools which would be disastrous and in utah was it was it uh, struck down then did they have any yeah but it was close i mean it's just it just that i think uh, in particular, BYU did a really good job of, of sending people up there to say, hey, hey we don't want to do this. See, that's really it's interesting. It's a so creationist attempt to, 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 to teach their brand of creation in the schools. So you basically had BYU um, – uh, not religion – BYU professors uh, going up to talk to the legislature? Yeah, yeah. I wasn't one of them, but, but a, a good number of the biology department went up there to, to – to talk and to, uh, to to try to straighten out the misinformation that they received. Okay. Well, before we go, I wanted to kind of just give you the floor for for a couple minutes, if if you wanted to take a minute to uh, to express any thoughts or anything that you that you had before we close out the podcast. I just wanted to give you open mic and uh, and and kind of let you go with it. Yeah. What I think what the message I would send if I if I could get people. Is attention to, to to realize this is that that science and faith aren't enemies, that the two are perfectly compatible, and that the the two are beautiful and magnificent ways of understanding the way the universe works, both from the religious side, our place in it, why we're here, and what matters, and from the science side, the material facts of the universe, how life has evolved, how how things have have transpired. We're, we're facing a crisis, uh, quite literally, uh, among, among the youth and among others who, who look at the statements from the past that suggest that you have to choose between evolution and religion, that the two are incompatible, that there's no way to, to, to merge the two. And, and it, it's tragic when people are, are forced to make a decision because mistakes... Uh, get made. I mean, if you really, really believe that either the true church is true or evolution is true, but not both, then when you're confronted, you go to another university, you're confronted with the mass of evidence, and you, you, you come to think, well, you know, I have to give up reason itself if I'm, if I'm going to not accept this kind of evidence. And so I have to choose. And the, the tragedy is the choice never has to be made. The two are perfectly compatible. There, there, there are tensions. There are things that need to be worked out. There are challenges to rec reconciling. You know, some, some of our 
of our deep doctrines and the, the scientific story of life on earth. But that's a challenge. That's not a reason to abandon hope. And so the people, the, the people who argue that you do have to make a choice, and there are those people that say, you know, if you believe in evolution, if you believe that there was life before uh, there was no death, if you, if you believe there was death before the fall, then you're in apostasy and, you know, you're going to, going to face the consequences of that. That kind of attitude, I think, is harming, in particular, the youth of this generation. And I'd like to see a more compatible rhetoric uh, in the blogosphere and other places where people make these kinds of arguments. So that's my final take. Do you think seminary uh, students could could use some of that too? I, I th my my feeling is that that a lot of um, a lot of youth in the church get these ideas through uh, through seminary or institute or also some missionaries probably encountered. I I encountered it on my mission as well. And that isn't to say that I'm not implicating all seminary institute teachers or all missionaries. But I think those avenues tend to. I don't. I don't remember creation anything like creationism being taught in a Sunday school class. I guess very, very frequently. And maybe that's because we only talk about the Old Testament once every four years. But what, what's your <laughs> yeah. what's your thought about that as far as church instruction on on that issue? Well, you know, it's fairly uneven. Even, but I've seen to this day my own kids being introduced to these very, you know, very evangelical Christian creation ideas. Uh, and I think it's unfortunate. I think it's widespread in, in, in seminary in some ways. I mean, I hear this complaint from other science parents. I've run into it myself. There seems to be within uh, church education kind of a culture of this old style creationism, this, this creationism that kind of crept in from, from uh, fundamentalist uh, 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 Christianity, and it, it's unfortunate because I don't think it's part of our doctrines, and yet there is a widespread belief that it is, and uh, it's it's just unfortunate that that uh, kids are exposed to this this these ideas that I don't think are LDS doctrine, and they're certainly not scientific, uh, scientifically accurate or informed or, or anything. So to the extent that it, it exists, I, I, think, I think real work needs to be done to, to get rid of those kinds of attitudes and those perceptions because it creates a, a, a suspicion about science and turns people away from science uh, who might be otherwise interested in it or turns people away from religion who are interested in science. And that dichotomy just shouldn't exist. I, I also, I just now remembering, I wanted to revisit one other point that we talked about earlier in the podcast. Um, we we mentioned something about drawing drawing lessons from science or drawing inspiration from science, and uh, which you seemed sort of reluctant about. But I I wonder um, what what role science can can play in in informing faith. And I know some sometimes this can take a, a strange turn. I know there have been. People who have proposed things. We talked about the God spot idea, or yeah. you know, a, a neuroscientist who tried to um, replicate the feeling of inspiration or something by having a, a stimulating the brain in, in certain ways and things like that. So, right. or people saying that altruism evolved as a as a mechanism to to uh, enhance uh, enhance repro reproduction you know, yeah. fitness to enhance fitness. Right. Um, so, so some people want to draw on, on evolution to to talk about those types of ideas, even the development of morals themselves. But um, as far as how science can inform faith, because I, I believe faith can inform science, and we've talked about that. What about science? In, what about science informing faith? I I think I think it can in a way, because I I think that knowledge in itself is one of our values within the church. We talk a lot about gaining knowledge, and we talk a lot about gaining education. And science really is the best way that we have to further our, our, our knowledge about the world. And, and I think the world really, really is important, understanding the world. We have the scriptures that talk about studying things under the earth and above the earth. And I think that's one of the mandates that, that God has given us, is to, to try to understand the world as best we can, given the limitations that we have given our 
our our biases and and our our tendency to to misread. Even so, knowledge is a wondrous thing. In the world of science, I mean, who hasn't watched a, a documentary of the immensity of space and and had kind of a Moses experience of you know what is man what I, I know I'm nothing now in the in the face of this and and turning that around and understanding the the beauty of the world understanding the 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 the, the depth of of complexity that is the world it makes us value the world and I think that perception really is important and 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 probably we don't want to get into it much but for me the the ideas of evolution the ideas of science teach me about this world that really matters and I've, i have this i've, I've had this pr profound experience in recognizing that all of the creatures of this earth have have come out through an organic process that we're all related we're all part of something big and what's really cool about Mormon doctrine is that that we understand this earth is our final resting place. This is where we're going to stay. This is ours. And and this the the the, the beauty, the 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 intricacy, the importance of everything that's gone on to get us to this point is 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 there for us to read in the rocks, to read in the cells and it it, it creates this beautiful perception that that being embodied matters, that being that the things around us matter, that the earth itself matters, and that this is going to be our final resting place. And, and all these connections uh, are, are in, in some sense part of something wondrous. And I can't help but have that feel like it's part of a religious experience to me. Um, the things that I've learned from science have been integrated into my spiritual worldviews. And for me, that's 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 a powerful way that science informs my faith. And I think that nothing damages faith more than ignorance. Conversely, I think that sort of the 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 growing anti-intellectualism, the growing anti-science movements, damage faith. They create a very hollow and shallow faith. Right. I, I don't. I don't know. I. I don't. I personally. I. And and I think this is what you're saying, but I I wouldn't necessarily say the problem is ignorance itself, because right we all have our blind spots, right? But oh, right, but right. I think it's it's the confident ignorance, it's the the right. deliberate or focused denial, it's it's the right. purposeful ignorance. I think that that yeah that yeah, you're talking it's a suspicion about suspicion that scientists are in some grand conspiracy that that you know all opinions are of equal weight. You know, it's 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 almost kind of an insidious relativism. That you know, uh, you know, scientists are just doing the same thing that me sitting in my armchair uh, are doing. Uh, you know, I, my my opinions as good as theirs, or like one one friend uh, told me he was he was down in the desert and and he was with with a, a, another LDS friend, but one not interested in science, or even someone who thinks science is dangerous and. He, the the friend said, you know, I wonder how all these formations got here, and my uh, my other friend said, well, geologists say, and and the other guy said, geologists, that's like just like saying you don't know. <laughs> <laughs> so he was about to give a beautiful explanation of where these formations came from, the you know the the history of of giant lake beds depositing sand in massive river deltas, but no. You know, if a geologist said it, let's go with a different explanation. <laughs> oh, man, yeah. Yeah, that's – I think part – I guess part of the problem with people who are so confident that science disproves religion or who are so confident that it can't that they'll completely ignore science both sort of suffer from the same the same um, problem. And, and that might be just the unwillingness to – to be unsure, maybe. I mean, right. there's there's this really interesting quote from a um, an uh, an article that I was reading by I don't know how to pronounce his last name, but it's Jeffrey uh, Schloss, and this is really interesting. He said he said that uh, people need to develop a mature willingness to walk with an epistemic limp, so to speak. Yeah. I don't know. I just thought that was a really interesting way to put it. That we have a lot of questions, right? I mean. Yeah. And and I think that's that's a really important point. I mean, I I do think that 
we've gotten so used to being sure of ourselves, of having all the answers, that when we don't have an answer, we we too quickly want to fill it with the you know the latest, the, you know the closest thing we can fill it with, rather than taking the time to try to try to to be comfortable maybe with there isn't an answer yet we don't know and that's okay steve i really appreciate you taking the time um, yeah i hope it made sense and yeah i hope we both made some sense hopefully <laughs> right all right that's Stephen peck he's an associate professor of biology at brigham young university and he will likely join us again um, in an upcoming episode focusing on the environment in lds thought so stay tuned for that and thank you steve thank you blair this is fun 